Hello, and welcome to the very first episode of my podcast. I am your host, Justin Chapman, the author of the book Saturnalia, Traveling from Cape Town to Kampala in Search of an African Utopia, a memoir about my travels across Africa. The book was published by Rare Bird Books, which is the broadcaster of this podcast, so thank you very much, Rare Bird, for having me. Uh, Stay tuned every week or so for a new episode. I'll have lots of interesting guests uh, doing amazing things out there, and we'll talk writing, we'll talk politics, we'll talk music, art, love, death, religion, human rights, women's rights, civil rights, international relations, all kinds of good stuff. My guest today is my good friend Matt Horman, a writer, journalist, and historian based in Pasadena. He is the founder of History Buff, a weekly column devoted to Pasadena history, and his work has appeared in the Pasadena Weekly, Patch.com, The Argonaut, Westways Magazine, American Bungalow, Hometown Pasadena, the Sierra Madre Historical Society Newsletter, and more. His articles have focused on such topics as the real-life detective who tracked Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, the suffragist who went undercover to investigate a lynching in a Texas town, and the rise and fall of Pasadena's most famous rock and roll venue. Matt, thanks so much for joining me and being my first ever guest. Thanks for having me. Uh, so do you consider yourself to be a historian? Do you label yourself that way? I figure anyone who is in the depths of the Central Library archives pouring through microfiche is a historian. Yeah, I would say so. Um, I, did not, I didn't major in history in college, but uh, I've always been into history uh, going back to when I was a kid. And I think um, in high school is when I really became a lot more interested and, and sort of went into depth more into certain parts of American history that I found really interesting. And, um, mm-hmm. but it wasn't until I, I took a, uh, trip abroad when I was in my mid twenties to Ireland and I was just so blown away by all the history there, um, you know, from ancient to more modern history, uh, that when I got back, um, having grown up in LA, uh, I always had the impression that we sort of don't have history here, which isn't true. Um, So when I got back from my trip, I I got really interested in just kind of investigating the history of my own town, Pasadena, where I grew up. And um, so that kind of led into the the column that you mentioned, History Buff, which I write for Hometown Pasadena. And I found out all this really interesting stuff. Um, For me, it's it's, – there's sort of a meaningful um, connection in writing about the town where I – both grew up and still live, um, and finding out all this uh, really interesting stuff that happened in the past, both good and bad, uh, it just kind of adds to my appreciation of living here. So, yeah, I would consider myself a historian. It's not exclusively what I do, but uh, but certainly. All right. And, and Matt and I went to high school together at L.A. County High School for the Arts at uh, Cal State L.A. campus, and we were both in the theater department. And I, th- I think it's safe to say we both sort of shifted away from acting uh, toward and toward writing after that. Um, uh, Matt, were you always a writer, always interested in writing, or was there a shift in high school or afterward for you away from acting? Uh, you know, not always, no. Um, I would say it probably started when I was about 13 or 14, right after junior high. Um, up until then, I had certainly wanted to follow in my, my father's footsteps. He's an actor, and so that's mm-hmm. sort of what I thought I wanted to do. Um, and I was also really into filmmaking and screenwriting, um, but... Uh, uh, the summer between junior high and high school, I started just to kind of scribble in a journal that my grandmother had bought me, <laughs> basically because I felt uh-huh. guilty not writing in it because she had uh, got it got it for me as a birthday gift. So, um, yeah. But that's when I discovered that I really liked writing about my own life. Um, and then about halfway through high school, as I was doing these plays uh, at our high school, um, 
and doing other things too, you know, like um, directing and film stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there was a teacher, a particular teacher, who sort of became my mentor. And after I wrote a, an essay for him, he kind of sat me down and, and asked if I'd ever considered being a writer, like as a career. And I, ha- I really hadn't, but um, but he kind of guided me in that direction. And, and I sort of, uh, I also always had a love of literature. Especially when I was a kid, I would um, I had hundreds of books on tape, and I would listen to them in my room, just kind of sitting there. Um, and I still love books on tape, but so I, I've always yeah. had a love of literature. But in high school is when I really um, started to read a lot more, and just kind of realized how much you know amazing literature is out there, and how how different literature is in the way it affects your life from say a, a, a film or TV or or even music. Um, so yeah, I would say I, I definitely started writing. Um, in earnest in high school and then really kind of ramped it up after high school. After high school is when I really decided that's what I wanted to do with my life. And so that's why I ended up majoring in English and have had a bunch of different jobs related to writing. I worked for a publishing company and as a writer's assistant and a couple other jobs in that field. So no, uh, not, I would, not always, I, <laughs> but certainly since I was a teenager. Yeah. Which teacher was it that, um, push you in that direction it was mr cohen okay yeah um uh, norman cohen was a uh, a favorite of uh matt matt's and mine um uh so so i i uh i really want to talk about your article for the pasadena weekly you wrote about the destruction of pasadena's chinatown in 1885 it's called uh night of terror why and how a mob of white racists set fire to pasadena's chinatown 130 years ago it was published in the weekly on November 5th, 2015, and since then, Matt has given two presentations on the story to the Chinese Historical Society of Southern California, as well as the South Pasadena Public Library and the South Pasadena Chinese American Club. I was there at the second presentation, and it was a packed house of um, 200 people, uh, and the mayor of South Pasadena even gave Matt a coin to the city. Was it a coin to the city or a key to the city, Matt? <laughs> it was a very nice coin. <laughs> Um, so I'll read the description of the presentation and then we can, we can um, get into the story. Um, so it's titled The Darkest Night, The Destruction and Rebirth of Pasadena's Chinatown and a Frightful 1985 that Caused the Displacement of the Chinese res- Residents of Pasadena. Historians and even the journalists of the time differ on some of the minor details of what exactly happened the night of November 6, 1885. Nevertheless, uh, the major facts are clear. Over the course of 24 hours, enraged white races drove Pasadena's roughly 100 Chinese residents from the city. At a time when anti-Chinese sentiment was at its height, locals were looking for almost any excuse to drive the Chinese out of Pasadena. About 100 men, a quarter or so of the entire population of Pasadena, participated in the riot, yet no one was ever charged or arrested in the case. And to this day, the names of the rioters remain unknown. Cruelty began when rumors were spread that the Chinese had started a fire. As a result, a riot was incited by a mob of white men who set fire to a Chinese laundry business. By the next day, the entire Chinese population of Pasadena had fled. It was a pivotal incident in the city's early history, leading to the creation of Pasadena's first fire department and ushering it in an era of racial separation lasting for decades. And you can you can still find this story um, online. You go to PasadenaWeekly.com. And um, there's a, a, a drop-down menu on the right that lists all the authors. If you go to Matt Horman, uh, you can find the story. So, Matt, give us a, a, a sort of a brief overview of, of the story, of the, 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 main, um, the main things that happened. 
Sure, sure. Um, so Pasadena started as a typical small town in Southern California in the 1870s, um, and it was an agricultural hub. They grew citrus and uh, grapes mostly around here, and uh, it was um, it began to grow more in the 1880s. And at the time, the main agricultural uh, labor force in the San Gabriel Valley was was Chinese immigrants, which is kind of hard to believe today, um, but. They comprised, I think, somewhere between 60 and 70 percent of the labor force. So um, as Pasadena grew into a small Victorian town, um, uh, Chinese immigrants who had worked on the, the Transcontinental Railroad moved to Pasadena to try to find any work that they could. And um, eventually a small Chinatown kind of developed in the middle of Pasadena, and uh, the street where it stood is still there. It's it's actually really more of an alleyway. It's only about 500 feet long. Um, but uh, they they kind of staked out uh, a life for themselves there and had a few Chinese businesses and some bunkhouses. It was really not – I mean, when we think of a Chinatown, we think of like a, a whole neighborhood, but this is really just one street of about 60 to 100 uh, residents. Um, at the time, and, this was – and, and, and... And for people who, who know it, in present day, that's where Equator is and, and where Jake's used to be that alleyway there, right? Right, exactly, exactly. I I remember it uh, from my junior high years as sort of like the, the first date spot for kids who weren't old enough to, you know, go to a bar or uh, somewhere more adult. Yeah. We would go to Equator and, and get coffee instead. Um, right. But yeah, so it's today, this part of Pasadena is like the most tourist heavy part of the city. Um, mm -hmm. and it's, 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 they've, the city has redesigned it into a very walkable neighborhood and it's full of, you know, craft beer bars and fancy restaurants and that kind of thing. Um, but it was just on un, unpaved dirt roads back in the 1880s. Um, and so th this was when passing this Chinatown just began to, uh, spring up, there was also incredible racism, uh, sort of simmering against the Chinese all across the West. And mm -hmm. it had to do mostly with uh, labor competition, economic competition. Um, a lot of white workers uh, resented the Chinese because they would work for, um, for, for less, and they would do very undesirable jobs that other people didn't want to do. Uh, there's actually a lot of parallels towards some of the prejudice we see today towards uh, uh, Latino immigrants. Um, mm -hmm especially with the Donald Trump campaign. Um, but in any case, uh, <laughs> 1870s, 1880s, and into the 1890s, um, the reaction was to, all across the West, these small towns basically just drove their Chinese out, um, sometimes through violence, sometimes through uh, legal ordinances. Um, but in any case, about 400 towns all across California, Oregon, Washington, Wyoming, and a few other states were... Um, basically ethnically cleansed of their of their Chinatowns. Um, and sometimes there was mass violence against the Chinese as well. Um, not a lot of people know this, but there were several massacres in which something like 30 Chinese people were, were brutally murdered. Um, mm -hmm. So Pasadena, unfortunately, is part of that tradition. So as all this racism was, was growing around the West, um, Pasadena kind of succumbed to it, and so their city newspaper began to publish these anti-Chinese articles that were really incredibly racist. They used terribly racist language, claimed that the Chinese uh, should all be deported from California, 
um, et cetera. And uh, this certainly, yeah, at least uh, it it, it, re- it really reminds me of um, uh, like in in uh, Rwanda when all the radio broadcasts leading up to um, you know to the massacre, like sort of laying the groundwork for the, this violence to take place. Oh, exactly. I mean, people who think that the media has no uh, influence on people are are totally wrong. I mean, just look at Nazi Germany with these horrible uh, racist Nazi papers that would caricature Jews. And um, papers in the U.S. did that, too, with Chinese, not just with words, but with um, cartoons that portrayed them in 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 a very stereotypical way. I wish I had some of the quotes in front of me, but I don't. But they're very, you know, they're very shocking to today's readers, uh, the stuff that was published in the city newspaper. And interestingly enough, this newspaper uh, is actually still in print. It, it merged with another paper, and today it's called the Pasadena Star News. Of course, it's, it has nothing to do with how it was back then, but um, it's interesting that it continued. Um, so anyway, yeah. uh, in 1885 is when things really um, kind of got out of control in Pasadena, and uh, there were there was talk of of raiding uh, Chinatown. In fact, it was raided uh, on a few occasions, usually by one or two young kind of hooligan types. Um, but it was always treated as sort of, um, you know, when someone would go and th- start throwing stones at the Chinese, it was sort of treated as a joke in the local paper. Um, and they were just kind of like a target or a scapegoat. Um, but anyway, uh, this incident uh, what happened later in 1885, it's always thought to have been sort of a random act perpetrated against the Chinese, but the evidence I found shows that basically the the elites, the wealthy, the citrus growers and bankers of Pasadena coordinated a, an effort to drive the Chinese out. And so they circulated this anti-Chinese petition um, in November 1885 that basically pledged the signers to not rent, uh, lease, sell any property to Chinese uh, tenants. And about a quarter or so of the city, uh, the city's residents signed that. And then on the, the very morning that that agreement was um, sort of ratified, basically a, a fire broke out in the middle of the city. And it was it was later determined to have been lit by a dropped cigar stub, but um, because of all the, you know, the stirring resentment in the city at the time, everyone started to blame it on the Chinese, and so everyone was sort of on edge. Um, they they put that fire out eventually, but that evening there was uh, a group of men, as you mentioned, um, that we know they're white because there were no, other than the Chinese, there were no non-white citizens in the whole city at the time. But they gathered uh, in the in in the city center. Uh, for those of you who know Pasadena, it's near modern day Green Street and uh, Fair Oaks, and it's a very like urban uh, part of the city now. But it's where this Chinese laundry house stood at the time. And so these men started gathering, and most of them were uh, intoxicated, and they started kind of. Uh, jeering or swearing at the Chinese inside the the laundry uh, house. And then someone threw a stone into the laundry, and then someone threw another stone, and that the second stone hit a kerosene lamp that was burning uh, while the you know to give light to the Chinese workers while they while they did the laundry. Um, and that unfortunately the the lamp got knocked over and a fire started, and pretty soon things got out of control after that. Basically, a, a, a minor race riot broke out. Um, the Chinese, the, the men 
who uh, threw the stones then stormed the wash house and drove the Chinese out and looted uh, everything they could get their hands on before the, the wash house burned down. And then other people soon joined them. And so, yeah, it was, it was total chaos. The, the, the men in the mob were threatening to lynch the Chinese. They finally chased uh, about nine or ten of them into another building, and the Chinese literally had to barricade themselves inside while the men sort of tried to pull the building apart. Um, so it was a really harrowing evening, um, and uh, eventually the, the, the town sheriff came in and kind of stopped the riot by pulling his gun on the mob. But uh, it very it very easily could have become a, a mass lynching or at least yeah. uh, some kind of act of mass violence. So, yeah, it, it's, I mean, I found the story so interesting because it's almost like, I mean, it's almost more compelling than fiction. Um, yeah. After that, the, yeah. the next day, the the same people who had drafted this anti-Chinese ordinance made a, another sort of um, petition. They drew it up in a notary public office, and this one uh, banished the Chinese officially from the from the city. And so they uh, the they were not allowed to live any longer in the in the legal borders of Pasadena, which were a little bit porous at the time because the the city was not incorporated yet, so it wasn't an official. Uh, city in California, but it was basically like outside of the borders of um, you know the, the 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 major streets that kind of bordered the town. Um, mm-hmm. And then uh, the last thing that happened, and this, this, and I only found one source that claimed this, but I do, but I do believe it because it's very similar to what happened in other towns, is that someone went to the Chinese community and and told them. Basically, that if they didn't leave within 24 hours, they would be probably. I mean, the implication is that they would probably be lynched. Although they, it just said that they were would be driven out by force. But in other towns, they they threatened to lynch them. And, and in Pasadena, they erected a sort of um, effigy scarecrow type figure that was hanging from a telegraph pole, and it was of a Chinese man. So the the message was sort of um, get out, or we'll or we'll hang you up from this pole. So anyway. Um, yeah, so th- so that that's basically what happened, and it had a long-lasting impact on the Chinese community. Um, I, don't, I don't know how long they were um, prevented from living in the city again, but it was at least a decade, if not more. Yeah. Uh, uh, so so a few questions. So so um, uh, do we know who dropped that cigar that started the first fire? No, no, it was just some pedestrian. Uh, but it was blamed on the Chinese. Exactly, exactly, because uh, sentiment was so strong against them already. Uh, it basically, it was a, a rumor. Probably one or two people started the rumor, and it, it spread like wildfire throughout the city. And um, right. yeah, uh, but all kinds of things were blamed on the Chinese. I mean, there were <laughs> crazy things in the months leading up to this riot. They they would claim that there were like these huge fights that would break out and in Chinatown and that the, the Chinese were shooting people and throwing, throwing stones and gambling. They probably did do a little gambling, but this was all recorded in the city paper, which was a highly biased source. So I, I tend not right. to believe most. Of it. Um, and, uh, um, and then the fire that the rioters started was more or less an accident, right? I mean, they're throwing rocks in through the window, but um, one hit a kerosene lamp that started it, right? It wasn't like a, a, an arson necessarily. Right, exactly, exactly. It, it, it basically amounts to arson. My hunch is that they tried to hit the lamp specifically so that they would start a fire. 
Um, uh-huh. But no, it wasn't. It wasn't like they went and like lit it on fire. Um, in other towns, they did do that. In other towns, like Santa Ana had a Chinatown. Uh, Santa Ana's a pretty large town in Orange County. And uh, in 1906, the local authorities claimed that there was plague or some kind of disease in Chinatown. So they evacuated everyone and then burned it down after that. But it was all just a pretense to destroy the Chinatown. Right. Um, and, and, and so as far as we know, nobody was killed in this specific incident, right? But the, the mob right, exactly. did hang this energy. Right. Yeah. No one. No one was killed. Probably a few people were injured because the the, the uh-huh. mob were throwing stones and sticks and other projectiles at the Chinese. Um, so I'm sure some people were injured, but that was never recorded by any of the local papers. Well, and where was this effigy? Was that Fair Oaks and Green? Yeah, I've basically pinpointed exactly where they where they hung it. There's a, a remarkable, startling photograph that was taken by some photographer the next day, black and white. Uh, photograph, um, pretty high resolution for the time. You can, the copy I have, you can zoom in quite close. Um, so it's taken. Let's see, it's facing northwest is where the, is how the camera is facing. So it would be right at the corner of Green Street and Fair Oaks on the. If you're looking up Fair Oaks on the on the left side. Mm-hmm. And I can't so tell where that 80, 85 degrees is. Exactly. Right in front of there, it would be sort of right where the sidewalk comes out of that bakery on Fair Oaks. And I don't know if it's a, I don't know if it was a telegraph or a telephone because they did have one telephone in the city. And I don't, um, I guess they had telephone lines that went probably to downtown LA, but they also had telegraphs. So it's, it's one or the other. Yeah. But right in the heart of Old Town, basically. Yeah, Exactly. Um, and, um, uh, and your story, uh, says that the, the writers were more than just some hoodlums, uh, that they were actually city officials and other influential members of, of the city, right? Oh yeah. I'm almost certain of it. Um, there was a witness, uh, who actually, he was the former state superintendent of education for the state of California. And he was, um, quite well connected. He knew, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson and I think John Muir as well. Um, and he lived on the outskirts of Pasadena, where the Norton Simon Art Museum now stands. And he uh, he he, pub- he he wrote a letter to the LA Times a few days later, um, giving his side of the story and what he witnessed. And again, this is only one eyewitness account, but he claimed to have seen uh, a road surveyor, several um, I think trustees of the of the school board, a clergy member. Mm-hmm. Um, basically all these prominent, respectable citizens of Pasadena, he claimed to have seen them in the mob. So um, we don't know for sure if that's true, but uh, given the number of men that were involved and the population of the city at, at the time, it would be really unlikely if, if a few, you know, if there weren't at least a few uh, involved. Right. Well, and it was also these influential uh, men who were involved with the petition to exclude the Chinese, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, and we think of them, you know, we we still have the stereotype that if you're wealthy and a member of a, a different social class, then you're somehow more civilized and, you know, you would never do something like participate in a riot. But we see countless examples, especially in the South. I mean, you know, if you look at um, the the terror suffered by African-Americans in the South, especially with lynching, I mean, there, there were towns where everyone from the mayor down to, um, you know, the – the town sheriff were involved directly in the lynching or at least stood on and, and approved of it. Um, my hunch is that's what happened in Pasadena with all but a few of the, um, of the more wealthy class 
But yeah, you're absolutely right. It was, and and this, and this shows you how deep the racism was at the time because Chinese labor was what was sustaining most of these wealthy men. I mean, the, the, especially the agriculturalists. Right. Um, they, they, you know, they employed almost exclusively Chinese on their ranches, so they were willing to basically suffer a loss of profit um, just because they didn't want Chinese around. Yeah, um, and, and so, so tell me about uh, the uh, deputy sheriff Thomas Brambury. Was he the only one to actually defend the Chinese in this? Yeah, yeah. History is so interesting. It's it's you can you always want to like fit it into uh, into sort of the model of a of a fictional story with clear cut heroes and villains. Um, but it's always more complicated than that. There's always more shades of gray. Yeah. So if there is one sort of semi heroic person in this story, it's this man Thomas Banbury, who you mentioned. He was uh, Englishman, and then he moved to Canada, and then eventually moved to Pasadena. Um, and his brother was a famous Civil War uh, Union Civil War colonel. But yeah, basically he was um he was at least one of the only people to try to step in and stop the riot. He once he heard what was going on in Chinatown that these men were basically attacking the Chinese and trying to burn the place down, he um grabbed three other men, uh, kind of I think one was actually another member of the police force and two others were just civilians who he deputized on the spot. And so they went to Chinatown uh, it only historical accounts only say that he was armed, but they may they may have had uh, guns as well. But in any case, he got to Chinatown, and there were uh, roughly a hundred men trying to attack the Chinese. And he got up on a barrel and pulled his pistol and and started to basically threaten to shoot them if they didn't stop. I mean, with that many yeah. men, he wouldn't have, you know they could have easily overpowered him. But he 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 seems to have been a very highly respected figure in the town. So probably once people saw him, they were willing to stop and listen. Um, and so he, it's it's not recorded what he said, but he said something to them to calm them down. And eventually he um, sort of compromised and promised that he would try to. Uh, get the Chinese to leave if if the mob would disperse and, and stop their assault, which is what he did. Yeah. He went into this room where the where some Chinese workers had barricaded themselves, and he kind of had a little um, truce council, I guess, with them. And so he talked to them for like 20 minutes or so, and then they, they agreed uh, on the spot that they would leave the next day. And so he came out and he told them that to the mob, and the mob was satisfied with that, so they so they left. Um, so uh, why I think he's not a clear-cut hero is that he didn't arrest anyone that night, even though obviously you know, multiple crimes were committed. Um, but right. he did – the next day he did lease he, – he began to lease his own property for the Chinese who had been displaced. And to my knowledge, he was the only one to do that. So you know, he, he does come out of this story looking better than almost everyone else, but he's still not right. uh, entirely like uh, – you know, like a John Wayne type of hero. Yeah. Um, and so this uh, Chinatown incident happened just, uh, uh, was it less than a year before the city of Pasadena was incorporated? Yeah. Yes, less than a year. I don't know. Uh, Pasadena was incorporated in 1886, and I think it was, yeah, um, yeah I think it was somewhere in the middle of that year. So maybe you know. I think it was somewhere in June or July, something like that. Yeah, so it would have been less than a year. And one theory I have is that they they were already moved to incorporate, I mean, even in like 1883, 1884, and also in 1885. So um, my hunch is that, that they may have been trying to drive the Chinese out first before they incorporated because they were trying to sort of pitch themselves or sell themselves as um, 
as a resort town for people from the Midwest and from the East Coast to come and spend their winters. So, And the Chinatown also happened to be just behind Pasadena's fanciest hotel, so they may have also considered it sort of a visual blight on the landscape and wanted it out of there. And then there was there's another theory that actually another historian uh, came up with. It's it's the only it's probably the most comprehensive account besides the article I wrote of this incident uh-huh. um, in a book that's sort of having to do with segregation both in Pasadena and, and another town in the south. It's kind of comparing them, but he thinks that the Chinatown was also displaced because that was becoming some of the city's most valuable real estate, um, that whole area. And indeed, like right Uh after Chinatown was destroyed, um, a huge building went up just at the corner of Colorado and Mills uh, Place. Mills Place is where Chinatown stood. And that building actually still stands. It was built in 1886. Um, And there there are other buildings built nearby, but but yeah, it was, uh, that was like really hot property. Yeah. Uh, so there was a financial incentive behind this as well. Yeah, yeah. Some people think that, yeah. And, well, it's interesting that that today that, uh, many Asian businesses have been established right there in that part of Old Town that was once Chinatown. Yeah, exactly. That's one of the first things I noticed when I started to research this um, is that all, there's all these Asian businesses that line the same place that was once Chinatown. This alleyway... Uh, dates to 1878. It's kind of remarkable. It was actually just a private dirt driveway for a citrus grower. And then within about seven years, it had become an actual street. It was called Mills Street. And it still stands today. It's now called Mills Place, but it was called Mills Mills Street for a long time. And I think maybe Mills Alley as well. Um, But back in the 70s, you can see these photographs on um, the Pasadena Public Library's website. It was just like, it looked like a slum. It looked like Skid Row. Um, and it wasn't until the early 1990s that it was kind of developed as a tourist district. And only in the past three years or so, these Asian businesses have started to move in um, and occupy that same spot. So I think it's kind of like karma coming back. Um, yeah. There's even like a really neat sculpture that was designed by a Chinese-American artist that stands right where this uh, laundry house was that burned down. And it's really beautiful. I, I don't think it has any connection to the riot, but... Uh, but it's kind of fitting that it's there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so how did you um, stumble onto this story? How did you come across it? You know, I honestly can't really remember. There were like three different things that happened. One was I read a little anecdote about it years ago, like seven or eight years ago in some uh, rinky-dink passing a history book that wasn't very good, but it, it was just kind of a passing reference to a Chinese laundry house burning down. And I kind of mentally filed that away for later because it sounded interesting. I, I, I knew almost without a doubt that there was some kind of racism uh, involved just because of my knowledge at the time, but I, I didn't really explore it further for a while. And then after that, I think I was just walking through Old Town one day, and I saw these two plaques. There's one at either end of this alleyway where Chinatown stood, and they mention the, the, the fire that burned this laundry down, but they don't mention any of the circumstances behind it. They don't mention that it was a race riot. They don't mention that the Chinese were all driven from the city, or even that there was a Chinatown there at all. It, j- it just says, uh, it gives a little explanation for how the alleyway got its name, and then it says there was a Chinese laundry here, and in 1885 it burned down, and the end. So that's when I, that's when I, I mean, I knew there was more to it than that. So that's when I really started to dig 
more. And at first I found history books that had a more comprehensive account, but even they seemed to be omitting something. Um, like they, they were omitting background and context and any kind of motivation for what happened. So that's when I started to go uh, kind of almost obsessively to the Pasadena Central Library's old newspaper uh, archives, which are all on microfilm, yeah. and you have to string them up on this funny machine. Um, and uh, just kind of looked through pretty much every issue from when the city got its first newspaper in 1883 to when this riot happened in November 1885. And I, that's when I dug up all this uh, really crazy stuff about who was involved and the movement against the Chinese uh, leading up to the incident and um, and the background of these men, you know, who they were and 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 even a few names of the Chinese who lived there. There we hardly know who any of them were, but I at least was able to dig up the names of a few businessmen. Yeah. So I think that's how it came even about. And then I spent about two years or so researching it on and off, uh, not constantly. I was working on other projects as well, but it, it was it became like a, a real obsession of mine. Um, so. Uh -huh. um, yeah. So you really had to dig for it. I did. It became uh, really interesting. It was it was kind of fun. I mean, it was a, it's a dark topic, but it was really. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed piecing this story together. It, it, um, I felt like I was sort of redressing uh, a wrong in history, both both in terms of what happened, which we can't really rectify now, um, but also in terms of other accounts that have that have neglected the the sort of racism aspect of this whole story. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, so you found the, the, this plaque or these two plaques in in in, um, uh, in that alley. It kind of whitewashes history. So, uh, is there anything that can be done? Can they be replaced with uh, I don't know a fuller history? What can current city officials do? Yeah, I, I think it could. They very easily could. Um, uh, I, I, I interviewed a number of historians for my article, and two were Asian American, Chinese American specifically. And a third, uh, she's Caucasian, I think, but she wrote a whole book on these Chinese expulsions in the West. And all three of them, I mean, without even batting an eye, they were like, oh, they should definitely be replaced. There should be a more, if there's any plaque at all, it should tell a more uh, a fuller story of what happened. Um, yeah. And one suggested maybe some kind of like memorial or statue, something like that, to commemorate not just what happened the bad part of it to the Chinese, but their incredible contribution as immigrants to the city, because they really did a lot. I mean, they, you know, they grew the crops, they worked as domestic servants and in the hotels, and they did all the city's laundry. They built the first the regular railroad and then the red cars when they came later in the early 1900s. Um, so, yeah, um, I, I, I did talk to some city officials, and mostly what I got from them was kind of a cold reaction uh, one said well if we do it for the chinese then we will have to do it for everyone <laughs> so um so far no movement from the city but uh but it could happen i don't know i haven't been that involved to be honest i've, I've just my main focus was just telling the story because it was interesting yeah yeah it's a fascinating story um and uh, and 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 really um it just shows how long pasadena's um, you know, so sordid history of uh, of institutional official racism goes back. Exactly. Pasadena is so interesting because it's always had a progressive side, and then, like you said, like a like kind of a racist side or or classist. Certainly, um, right. I mean, it's it, it, Pasadena was the wealthiest city 
in the U.S. in I think it was 1960. Did you know that? No. It was founded yeah. by, by wealthy industrialists, right, from the east and the midwest. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. But there's always been an, a lower class that has, you know, built built the city. Um, right. For instance, it was all uh, Mexican American workers who built the Rose Bowl almost exclusively. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, what, what are you working on now? What, what's in your typewriter? I am actually concentrating more on my fiction right now. Um, basically, writing a couple of short stories, and that's what I've basically been focusing on recently. Uh, I've either been writing short stories or reading obsessively just to try to learn the craft better. Um, I am working on one history article kind of on and off, which is tangentially related to the one I did on Chinatown uh, about this lynching of a Chinese man that happened out in Azusa. Um, but yeah, that's uh, kind of an ongoing project. I do want to publish it eventually. Um, but yeah, basically just working on fiction at the moment. Cool. Well, Matt, thanks so much uh, for joining me for my first episode. I really appreciate it. Oh, I'm honored to be your first guest. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. Uh, so that's the uh, first episode of my podcast. Next week, we'll be talking to Ellen Snortland, a uh, local writer and women's rights activist. And she has just completed a documentary uh, based on her book, Beauty Bites Beast, uh, about women's self-defense. So um, we'll talk to her um, about that uh, project and that film. Uh, so join us again next week. Thank you very much. And thank you again for to Rare Bird for uh, broadcasting this podcast. Thank you. Bye.